Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Jake, the last time I saw you was at the Hyde Park Green Day extravaganza a couple of summers ago. And you were lounging backstage with Lars Fredrickson having a chat. And uh, that day, I did a podcast the next day with Jesse Malin, who was also on the bill. And I was saying to him, that day was just such a great intergenerational celebration of all things punk. Hmm. And I think it takes a special band like Green Day to pull all of those different bands from different eras and you know generations together and have it work so seamlessly and brilliantly what was a bill like that for you to be a part of um it was from our point of view it was a very much a last minute thing uh, right um you know we we got called literally so like uh, i'm trying to think how close it was to the to the actual date um but it really was a matter of weeks i mean it wasn't it wasn't something that we were planning on doing and uh, you know we just got we got called literally like a couple of weeks or so before it. Um, so, and I, I never really gave it much thought to be honest with you. I mean we had played on the same bill as Green Day before in Australia. We did um, like five or six festivals I think with them out there. And I mean to be honest with you, those those sort of things are so corporate and so you know sort of regimented that you barely get to see anybody else anyway so i mean we did we did we did those entire things with green day and i think i spoke to their drummer once out of the entire week we were there right um and you know again at at hyde park we didn't see any anyone i mean yeah i was talking to lars mainly i was talking to lars simply because i was about to go on tour on my own immediately following that with with them and drop kicks yeah with them and yeah yeah yeah. so um that was more of a just touch base and say hi before you know i was going to be stuck on a bus with them all for for a month or whatever um so yeah i mean it just you know just it, those things are just like i said so so regimented and, and they kind of have to be i mean you know because of the scale well, yeah and also yeah. you know the number of acts you've got to get through and you know you, there's no time for mucking about you, know, you kind of got to get on do your bit and get off and, yeah and that was kind of it i mean i i spent more time i think hanging out with rats gabies afterwards and then that was kind of the, the day done really you know so well, the dam were there as well. Like, yeah, yeah, they were. It was a great bill. Yeah. And so you enjoyed the day. Do you enjoy the performance? Uh, well, again, because we were on so so early. I mean, the thing that surprised me was that there were so many people in when we went on. We were really expecting just you know the gates to be open and we were going to play 
to security guys. But, you know, that's part of, I guess, what happens when you get added right at the very last minute. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was it was actually better than I thought it was going to be. The only problem was, again, you know, you're only playing for, like, 30 minutes. So we already had, we, we had no concept of how long 30 minutes was. Um, so we had, like, another three songs in the set, which, you know, so, you know those that could say, because once I take my glasses off, I'm blind as a bat. And it doesn't Are you really, really? Yeah, and it doesn't really matter how many times they say to me, oh, you won't run over, there's a clock at the side of the stage. I mean, the clock may as well be back in the dressing room, I'm not going to see it. So, um, you know, we, sort of that's when basically it was Ali saw it and came racing across and went, we've got to go straight to the last song, we're done. I went, oh, okay. So, you know, it, it kind of was, you know, it felt like one minute we were saying hello, the next minute we were saying goodbye. So it's... What about you run across the States with Dropkicks and Rancid? Like, for me, two of the best live bands in the world. Yeah, I've done it twice now. I did, I did, did it that year, and then I did it again last year. I did it longer last year. I did it with I was the Dropkicks again and Flogging Molly. Um, I mean, it was interesting. They, the, the Dropkicks asked me to do it, and I'd never really done anything completely on my own before. And that's what this was. It was just myself. Just you and a guitar. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'd done... Similar things with like Three Men in Black here and, and Dead Men Walking. Did but, Pauline do the US dates with you as well, or was she on the other half? No, they were on the other half. Right. Um, so you know, it was it was, um, it was a bit nerve wracking at first. Um, you know, just going out on your own because you're so used to you know after this number of years having a full band there. Yeah, I will bet. Uh, but you know, once you adapted to it and got used to it, I mean, I certainly enjoyed it more the second time round, um, simply because by that stage I sort of knew what I was doing. You'd you know? found your groove. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, maybe it wouldn't go quite that far. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't quite so, you know, I wasn't quite so petrified and, and the stages didn't look quite so big and intimidating. Were uh, they all pretty large stages then, were they? Yeah, I mean, you know, those bands and, and particularly the, the second run through with, with Floggy Molly on board, it was like, you know, they were playing to anything up to 10,000 people a night. That's a daunting vision, isn't it? As one man and a guitar to well, again, out they to. weren't always in, but there were a couple of shows that they were, and yeah, those were you know particularly the indoor ones. There was one in, um, I think, in Minneapolis, a place called the Armory, and yeah, there was there was already like eight thousand people in when I went on, and yeah, that that one little stool out in the middle of the stage looks an awfully long way away when you're walking on. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Well, talking of Flogging Molly, I just confirmed today that I'm going to be going out on their Salty Dog Cruise All right. and doing some DJing and stuff between the bands and Very kind cool. of after-party stuff. You're obviously on the bill. There's Pennywise on there as well, Bronx, Frank Turner, Flogging Molly. Yeah. Have you ever done anything like that before? I've never been on a cruise that has a live music element before. We did it once, but it was just an overnight thing. Right. Um, I'm expecting this to be a bit more fun because the one we did before was in the middle of winter and it left from Stockholm and oh no and stopped in the middle of the black, the, the Baltic Sea. I think it was mainly just an excuse for people to get into international waters and drink duty free. <laughs> you know, um, that's a long way to go. There, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> get and, through that and, yeah, and it was cold. And, yeah. You know, but I mean, to be honest, you didn't even really know you were on a boat. Those things are so big. Um, and yeah, we did that. It was just part of a Swedish tour, and it was it was in there, so we did it. This is the first time we've kind of done a you know a thing that's that actually seems to have a destination to it, rather than just stopping in the middle of the sea so people can get pissed. Well, there's, um, there's two stop-off points, right? Is there two? Does it set off from Fort Lauderdale? I, I'll take your word for it. I, I think I, it sets off from Fort Lauderdale, and then it goes to maybe Key West, and then another destination, because it's over a few days, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. I mean, but past, I've got no idea where. I, I actually thought it left from uh, Miami, but, you know, what do I know? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it's so far in the future at the moment. You know, we've got oh, so much yeah, more stuff to do that... You know, it's the last thing in the world I'm thinking about. But I'm looking forward to it because they're all really nice guys and, uh, you know, and, and Liddy. And uh, I had a lot of fun touring with them. So, you know, I'm looking forward to, to catching up with them all again. Did you happen to see, uh, I think it was last night, there was a like a Q&A panel in Los Angeles. I don't know whether you've seen this yet. Um, and you know, the, this is where Johnny got a bit drunk. Yes, this is yeah. where Johnny got a, Did you see it? I've seen bits of it, yeah. I've seen bits of it. <laughs> and you've got, you've got Duff McKagan, Henry Rollins... There's Marky Ramone, yeah. Danita Sparks from L7, and John. And it's hilarious because you can see Duff and Rollins are kind of just grinning and not really knowing what to do. But John and Mark go full-on loggerheads head-to-head. Yeah, I've seen bits of it. Yeah, but I, mean, then, I, I think John was a bit, a bit legless, but, you know. But then what's interesting, because I've had him on this podcast. I've only met him that one time, but we spent an hour together and we, you know, we conversed and we connected. And 
He's obviously a very contradictory, complicated character. And there's a video that's circulating from the same night of him doing this very heartfelt kind of plea, really, to anybody that's feeling low or down right. to seek help in re- you know, reaction to the Keith Flint. Yeah, so, sure. And so you have in the space of the same night these very two different images being you know, projected out into yeah. the internet. What's been your experiences with John over the years? Have you found him to be a provocateur and a sweetheart all at once? Um, I've only ever met him a couple of times and uh, both times he's been fine. Um, both times he's been pretty drunk, but both times he's been <laughs> He does fine. enjoy a drink. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't either, but, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he was... He, he, I, I mean, he's... I'm never sure because I I don't know him you know well enough how much of it is is him and how much of it is the public persona of John Lydon yeah the caricature or whatever and you know I'd, I'd be loath to say that that it was an act because it you know I don't think you've ever seen him when he's not being himself or not being you know the, a version the public, the public of character himself, yeah so I I don't know if that's really what he's like twenty four seven or not so. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the couple of times I've met him, he's been absolutely fine, and you know, I've had no problems with him at all. I know people can find him a bit spiky, but um, that's not been my experience with him. Were you, as obviously kind of contemporaries sometimes are, were you all friends when you were all coming up at that time? Well, they were ahead of us. We didn't really see the, the pistols at all. Um, Is that because Belfast was just that ever so slight bit behind? Yeah, and, and you know, we were we were like six months to a year behind what was really happening and also you know that just that little stretch of water makes a huge amount of difference um particularly we, then yeah, yeah. Um, when we came to when we first came to london the bands we tended to hang out with were were people that would be probably um considered sort of the second wave of bands i mean we became very good friends with with the members very good friends with the skids um and you know and it was interesting because uh, you know we were all being sort of lumped in together by the the music press and uh, I remember talking to uh, to Richard Jobson about it, and this is when we were both very young. And and he said, you know, he said, yeah, he said, if we see you guys get a four star review, we want to get a five star review. And I just burst out laughing. He said, what's so funny about that? I said, no, we do exactly the same when we see you guys review. <laughs> so, so it's an element of healthy competition. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, like I said, we were all friends. Um, it wasn't, you know, there was no never any any nasty edge to it at all um, but I just thought it was really funny that they they viewed it exactly the same way we did it might be the whole sort of not coming from particularly hit places you know they came from from Dunfermline we came from Belfast and you know the, the members came from from Camber, Camberwell Camberley rather Camberley and, and you know points in the suburbs famously so I think you know the fact that we weren't sort of you know the, the, the blitz kids or whatever the, the later generation I think that probably helped you know what was Belfast like for you as a young man growing up? Obviously, it was all you knew, so there was nothing to compare yeah. it to. But I mean, was it oppressive? Was it again, like just, culturally I think you, you, very I think behind? You, hit, you, you hit the nail on the head. We had nothing to compare it to. So, you know, I mean, we were aware that um, that it was different in so much as, like, you know, we said bands didn't come and play, um, and that you know, obviously, we were aware that you know the violence on the streets wasn't normal, but. If that's been your normality, I mean, the, the trouble started when I was 11 years old. Um, and if that's kind of what you've known since you were 11, I mean, I don't have many memories from before when it started. So, to, you know, to me, and certainly to people of my age and, and younger, it would have been completely normal. I mean, that's what they were used to. Um, and, you know, it's, it, 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 it's, so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because, like you said, I really don't have anything else to compare it to, you know. Culturally and musically, was there anything going on that was inspirational to you as an aspiring young songwriter? And within young, with, Within specifically uh, Belfast, no. yeah. No, there wasn't. Um, and, I mean, there probably was, but I, didn't, I, I wasn't aware of it. Um, so, I mean, to the point that when we, you know, formed the band, we did it mainly because, well, because, you know, we, we all were playing or learning to play, and playing with a band was just more fun than, than playing on your own. Um, and also we all gravitated towards the one type of music so we all liked that music and I think realistically part of it was we, we kind of felt we were, the only way we were going to ever hear this music played live was to do it ourselves um, so you know when when The Clash first came over and their show was uh, famously cancelled right at the last minute 
um, they were denied insurance to play is the story that was, was put around. I don't know whether that was the, the be-all and end-all of it, but that's, you know, they cancelled the show at the last minute. Do you think it was more for fear of... Oh, I honestly don't know. No, I honestly don't know. Don't I mean, know. you know, it, it, that, that was what we were told. I mean, I don't think it was anything to do with fear because they came back and played a few months later. Um, but, excuse me. Anyway, uh, yeah, they, you know, the, the thing that amused me was that there were about 300 people outside the venue and that stunned us because we were like, we thought... The four of us and maybe three or four of our friends were the only people who knew who the Clash were. Yeah. Um, so the fact that there were like three or four hundred people outside the venue was pretty impressive. And then we discovered that among those three hundred people or so, there were at least two other groups of people who had formed punk rock bands. And we're like, really? Okay. <laughs> and that's you know when we became aware of people like Rudy and the Outcasts and stuff and. And again, much like happened when we went to London and started hanging out with, with the skids and the members, when we knew all those guys, there there was a bit more edge to the competition, I think, because we were all really starting out and trying to make a name for ourselves. And, you know, there was, so there was a bit more of an edge to uh, the competition. That wasn't quite as friendly competition as it was later on. I mean, there was a friendly side to it, but, you know, it was, it, there was a bit more, bit more spark to it, I think, then. What were your means of discovering the likes of the Pistols, the Clash, Ramones? Uh, well, the pre-internet music, in that the, well, time yeah, and place. John Peel obviously is is answer number one. Um, Peel was playing all the stuff that anybody was even vaguely inter- that was vaguely interesting and had been for many years. So you know, Peel was was where you started, and obviously you know you were aware through the music papers that something was happening that was different. It wasn't like you know when Peel. We had discovered somebody like, say, Bebop Deluxe or whatever, and they, they were just, and you know, they were okay. They, they had a particularly good guitar player, uh, but they were, you know, sort of a Bowie-style rock band, or yeah. Whatever. So they followed on fairly naturally from what from had come before, right? Um, but when the Damned and the Pistols and the Ramones and all those people started happening, it was even though you know it only took a cursory, cursory look to realize, yeah, they're they're still rock and roll bands, but it was the attitude that was totally different. It was there was no there was no sort of reverential. Oh yeah, well of course we we love the Beatles or we love whoever. It was we hate all those people. Yeah, <laughs> no was, Elvis I mean, Beatles that, or the Rolling Stones. Exactly, yeah. and that was kind of an eye opener. It was like really, okay, uh, you know, that's interesting. And uh, and you know while I, I probably I mean I was never a Beatles fan to start with, but you know I wouldn't have rejected the Rolling Stones or Elvis Presley. Out of hand, but certainly the fact that they were done with the the yeses and Genesises and Pink Floyds of this world that attracted me because I was really done with them as well, you know. So, and you know, at that stage, I was listening to people like Doctor Feelgood, Graham Park, what would be you know, it was always often somewhat dismissed as the pub rock bands. And in fact, Eddie and the Hot Rods, who are, who are with us on tour at the moment, um, and those bands struck me as really exciting because they were the, the songs were done in three minutes and they were exciting and in a lot of the cases they only involved three chords so really you know it wasn't a big leap from that to to uh, the Ramones and to the Pistols and the Damned. My main take on 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 that wave of punk when it first happened was well it's great it's exciting it's fun it's obviously of my generation as well I mean these guys were pretty much the same age as I was as well. Um, so it appealed to me on a number of levels. I, I just didn't see where they were going to go with it. And I thought, this is great, but it'll all be done in six months. Um, Which it almost was. Right. And and then I heard The, the Clash. And, and even when I first heard White Riot, it was like, again, it fit. Because, oh, bless him, I couldn't understand a damn word Joe was saying. You know? <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, it still kind of fell into that, you know, that... Yeah, this is anarchy in the UK this, kind of. This stuff. is another exciting record, but yeah, exactly, you know that sort of thing. Um, then I got their album, and, and it was when I heard career opportunities and, and bent my ear and actually made out the words. I thought, oh, hang on, no, this is this is something because this guy's obviously this has come from the heart. This has happened to him, you know. He's been knocked back for you know. There are no decent jobs for, and I, again. Growing up in Northern Ireland, that really hit home because at the time, I mean, not long after UB40 famously had a hit with one in ten, which was you know based on the the the, uh, the unemployment statistics in the country at the time, which were like one in ten people were unemployed. I it, think people forget about their early material and how socialist they were. Yeah, they were they were very good at the start, but um, but in Northern Ireland, it was one in three were unemployed. So to, to hear a song like Career Opportunities really hit home, you know. And, in, in, and particularly including the line, you know, I won't open letter bombs for you. Is like sort of that. that I, I even put like a Northern Irish spin on it for me, which brought it home even further. And that's when I thought, you know, 
now there might be legs to this. Now that you might, you know, I mean, not that I was being so pretentious as to think that I would be one of the legs to it at the time, but I, I was just more interested in what the other bands were going to do because, again, at the time we hadn't really written any songs. We, we were just playing cover versions, you know. So. What the first song you wrote was "Suspect of Ice," was it? No, 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 it was either, and I'm never sure which way round it came. It was either. They both made the first record, though. Uh, it was either Breakout or State of Emergency. I'm never sure which one. Um, I have a feeling it was probably State of Emergency because that was kind of written about the situation, whereas Breakout was written about my dead-end office job that I couldn't stand, yeah. but was equally aware of the fact that with one in three people unemployed, or sort of one in three people, yeah, unemployed, it was like you, you want to make sure if you've got a job, you hang on to it, you know? So, But it was, it was one of those two. And so Suspect was the the first single, was it? Yeah, it was. That was what you got to John yeah. Peel and... Right. Yeah, I mean, it was the first song that I wrote with Gordon. Uh, in fact, he pretty much gave me the lyric totally finished. And that's that's kind of, you know, up to that point, I hadn't even tried... Well, I had barely been trying to write songs anyway, but I certainly had never thought of writing with anybody. And uh, so that became a, a partnership that lasted for at least four albums, you know. So that was... But yeah, that was the first song I wrote with Gordon was Suspect Device. A couple of things off the back of that. First of all, you did do, what was it, four albums and one live album in the initial yeah. gestation period of the band, which was, what, four years, was it? Or five? Uh, four or five, yeah, about that. I mean, that's a ferocious output, isn't it? And I think that yeah, was part I mean, of that culture at that time, wasn't it? It, it was, was. I mean, you know, I think that one year the Skids put two records out in a, <laughs> in a year, and it was, it was just insane. And I, and I think, you know, there's no way you could keep the quality level up. And I think, you know, the, our records probably suffered from that as much if not more than, than a lot of people. Um, I mean, even somebody like Elvis Costello, whose output at the time really was phenomenal, and also the quality of it was phenomenal, but you know, again, you go back and there's like, yeah, I could probably skip that track, you know, I could probably skip that track. Um, His albums would always have so many tracks on them as well, wouldn't Well, they? that was the other thing, yeah, when he did the Get Happy record, there was like 20 <laughs> yeah. tracks on it or something, I was like, dear God, it was like, it was like the rest of us, there's no chance of keeping up with this guy, it's like, just let him go, you know, there's no chance. You know. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, Do you think it's an age thing? I think it could be. And I think also, you know, when you're, when you're first starting, you're excited, you're, you know, you're... I think you just want... You, you want to get everything out there. You know, you want to... You, you, want, uh, you, you may not have anything to say, but by God, you're going to say it over and over again. Um, that's, not, that's not directed at anybody in particular. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, when, you're, when something's new to you, it's exciting. You want to, you know, you want to keep going back to the well all the time and doing it and doing it and doing it. Um, and you don't necessarily have as, as probably as, as steady a hand on the, the actual quality control as you probably should have. Um, you know, I'm not going to back and, and sing it like tracks because I've done that in the past with our records and then people come to me and say, why do you not like that one? It's my favourite. So I'm not going <laughs> to say I don't like certain songs. Um, but there are certain songs on our records that I would like, yeah, if, you know, if we'd, have, if we'd have waited six months and had half the songs that were on that record and half the songs that were on that, would have been a much, in a much stronger position. That would have been a much better record. Um, but, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, you know. Talk about striking gold with those two first singles, though, Suspect Device and Alternative Ulcer. I mean, they're obviously still two absolute staples in yeah, and it, you know, back we, catalog, I don't know right? about Striking Gold because we couldn't get arrested, you know. <laughs> really? Like, yeah, we, we thought they were good songs and good records, but... How long did it take to get some interest from Rough Trade then? Was oh, that a well, fight? Yeah, but Rough Trade, again, at the time, were basically a record shop. I okay, mean, so they weren't this revered institution they now are. Not at all. I mean, I think, you know, Alternative Ulster was like Rough Trade 6, so they'd only put five singles out before Alternative Ulster, and the album was their first ever album as Was well. it really? Yeah, so... You know, I mean, and that's that was in fact the you know that was the that was the line that, that Jeff Travis actually said to because we we went on the Tom Robinson tour who at the time were were a really big deal. It was two four six eight out at that point. Two four six eight had been out. They were they were promoting their first album, so they'd already had a couple of hits. Two yeah, four yeah. six eight, um, glad to be gay, and uh, up against the wall had all been hit records. And the first album, their first album, was a big success. So I mean, the tour was sold out everywhere, and they were all major, really major venues. And so for us to get that tour was, was a huge, you know, a huge uh, fill-up for the band. And that was down to Tom. I mean, they originally had Third World, the uh, reggae band, booked to play it. And then they had a hit of their own with, I think, Now That We've Found Love. And so suddenly they wanted to do their own tour. So the TRB were stuck, li literally, you know, like a month before they were going on the road with no opening act. And, you know, people put other bands forward. I think they shared, Tom shared management with Pink Floyd and, and one of the 
the other bands that they managed, they really wanted them to do it. Um, but Tom dug his heels and said he wanted us, which was, you know, incredibly kind of him. Because he could have got money off these other people to do the tour. We didn't have two pennies to scratch our backsides with. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, he, he very kindly paid us to come and do it. Um, and we were convinced that, you know, once people actually saw us live, we thought, we'll definitely get a record deal. We'll be fine. And it didn't happen. Um, and, you know, Rough Trade had stepped in and helped us by putting Alternative Ulster out when we'd originally been let down by Island Records, who'd initially offered us a deal when we were still in Belfast, and then they reneged on that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we got to the end of the TRB tour, and obviously we had all these songs, and we didn't really know what we were going to do with them, because we had no, no record deal. And, yeah, Jeff Travis came to see us uh, on the TRB tour, and he basically said, um, look, we've never made an album before, you've never made an album before, why don't we all get together in a studio and make an album and it really was it's like something out of a bad movie you know let's do the show right here but that's exactly how it happened you know and, and so we did um, so yeah I mean it was like and then of course that album was a, was a hit record and then suddenly every record label in the, in the country tried to sign us um, as is often the case right right I mean I think there were only two that your flavour of the month overnight sure and I think there were only two that weren't interested one was CBS and the other I think was A&M and, but apart from that, everybody else came, came calling again. You know. Have you seen the Good Vibrations film? Uh, yeah, I saw it when it came out, but I haven't seen it since. What was your relationship with Terry Hooley and with that record shop and with that whole scene? Was that in any way related to the Stiff Little Fingers story? Or? Not really. No? Um, no. Uh, you know, they, they, they ploughed their own furrow. I mean, we were... We weren't... I mean, we weren't sort of, you know, we weren't opposed to to anything Terry was doing. I mean, it was, it, again, you look back in with the benefit of hindsight, you look back on it and it was, I mean, it was pioneering and it was, um, you know, it was incredibly, I don't know that brave's the right word, but it was, you know, it, it, it was certainly incredibly generous of him because he was putting his own money and his own time into yeah. those those young bands. Um, and, you know, as is always the way, you know, people tended to be ungrateful. <laughs> it was like, it's just the way of the world, unfortunately. Um, yeah, when you're young and you're naive right, yeah, and you, you, greedy you expect, and hungry. Yeah, and, and the world should revolve around you, and it doesn't yeah. always. Um, but, you know, they, they, again, looking back on it, he, he did a lot of good. Uh, but at the time, you know, we weren't on his label. Um, we, we definitely wanted to do our own thing. And, uh, and I think, I don't know if it built up any resentment in Terry. I mean, we're still... We're still friends. Um, we're well, doing... Was there animosity between you and the Undertones, or has that been made more of in the press over the years? Um, there was a little bit. I mean, you know, there's no point in denying it. There was a little bit, but it wasn't... I don't think... It, certainly from my point of view, it certainly wasn't as big a deal as, as the press made it out to be. Um, and what, what was the Well, basically, I mean, the it, it came, it came, to, the it came down to, the, the, you know, both coming from uh, the north of Ireland... One being a very political band and the other one... Not at all. Not and at all. That, and that was the point. And it was, it was basically the, the approach that both bands took to the situation they found themselves in. And, I mean, I, found, I thought that both bands' attitudes were credible and, and, and reasonable. You know, the undertones took the, took the uh, position that everybody here has grown up with the Troubles. They know what it's like. If you go out for an evening, you want to go out and be entertained and forget about it. The last thing in the world you want to do is keep banging on about it. And, you know, they, I think they saw it as kind of making capital out of it and whatever. From my point of view, it was, that's exactly why we should have been singing about it. Because it is happening to us and it is happening around you. And if you're not going to bring it up, who the hell else is going to? Um, and I certainly didn't see it as making capital out of it. Because I, all I was doing was writing about my life. And how can, you know, how can that be? It's not like I was cashing in on anybody else's misery. So, you know, I thought both bands' attitudes were were viable and were were you know were actually valid, um, but uh, you know they obviously didn't at the time. I don't know if they changed their minds now. I haven't spoken to any of them for a million years, um, but certainly, you know, as far as I was concerned, there was no there was no personal animosity there. I didn't you know I didn't see the point in it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tell me about your friendship with Bruce Froxton over the years, because he's someone that's been sort of in and out of, I guess, your, well, your musical life in various forms. Yeah. Yes, he has. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, you know, so obviously the jam had a head start on us. They were part of the... They were such a fucking great band as they well. They were a great they? band. Um, they and... sort of got in, did it all, and then just... But yeah, out, we, did, didn't we didn't really meet them in London because, again, they'd, like I said, they had a head start on us. And certainly by the time we were going in to make Inflammed Material, they'd just released all Mod Cons. And, you know, then they went on that run of records that really put them into the, the stratosphere. Um, but where we did run into them a lot was we found ourselves being booked on the same festival bills in Europe, particularly, um, where they weren't quite so, you know, quite so big. Um, they were still bigger than we were, but, you know, they weren't the enormous band that they were here. Um, and so, yeah, we started running into them more and more at festivals, and then it became, you know, more, well, our hotel's just across the way, why don't you come back and have a drink? And that's that's basically how we, we met, was, sort of, you know, drinking in hotel bars after festivals. And Bruce Which and is I, still the way it often goes, right? Sure, yeah. you know, and Bruce and I just got on very well straight away, and, you know, we kept in touch once we got back to England, then, you know, uh, we'd, we would meet each other and, and, and go for beers and stuff. And it kind of went from there. You know, we discovered we, we liked a lot of the same music and stuff going back. Um, I'm sure you won't mind me saying Bruce is a year or two older than I am. Um, <laughs> just a hairline, yeah. Yeah, he really is just, you know, just a little bit. But um, And then, you know, then, you know, we, Jim Riley stayed in touch with Paul and they became really good friends. So, you know, we, we started to run into the jam a lot and we started to go to see them play here. And... And yeah, when, and then of course both bands split up at about the same time. Um, and what, so eighty three. Yeah, yeah. And so I got in touch with Bruce and said, "Look, do you fancy trying to do something together?" And we we got as far as we recorded some demos together, and uh, you know, it, it was all looking like it might it might work. And then Bruce got offered a solo deal. And I mean, he said himself, "Look, you know, I've kind of been in a three piece band where the singer writes most of the songs. I've got a chance to do this. I kind of want to give it a shot." And I went, "Yeah, okay. You can't really argue with that." And uh, he went off and did that for a while. And in you know, that didn't pan out so great for him. Um, I mean, he had a couple of minor hits. I think one reason besides hitting a smaller hit. Um, and uh, you know, in the meantime, the other things that that I was doing didn't pan out either. So we reformed Stiff Little Fingers in 87, I think, something like that. Um, mainly because we were all skin. Yeah, right. And it was coming up to Christmas and we all wanted to get back <laughs> to Ireland to see our parents. And that was the easiest way of doing it. Um, and what amazed us was just the, the amount of affection that people still had for the band. And if anything, we were, you know, playing to bigger audiences than we did when we were still together. Um, but then Ali decided that he didn't want to, to tour as much as it was obviously going to be. You know, once we started writing new material, I think he started to see the album tour, album tour, album. And like you said before, you know, when we did it the first time, it was all under pressure from record companies. And I think he probably thought it was going to be the same again. Just this relentless right, right record and that, you know, tour. That led to it repeat. not being it as much. Not, well, it led to being no fun at all, actually, and, and it led to disagreements. And I think he probably saw that coming again and was like, "I really don't want to do that again." You know, it's been. Been great to reconnect, but I don't want to go down that road again. 
Um, so he, you know, he was he was on his way, and and I, mean, I was amazed. I phoned Bruce up, and I, I thought he's going to be busy doing something. He's bound to be busy doing something, and he he wasn't really. And and I was living in Newcastle at the time. You've lived quite a lot of different places, haven't you? I have. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, that's where the Newcastle United relationship begins. Yeah, then, yeah, obviously. my first wife couldn't have lived in bloody Manchester or anywhere. <laughs> a good football team, could she? Um, anyway, uh, yeah. So yeah, and, uh, and as it happened, he was bizarrely playing uh, in a band in Walls End that weekend. So I was able to go and see him, and and you know, sort of. I think he thought I was just coming over to you know buy him a beer or whatever, which I did. I sort of took him. I kind of nicked him off the band he was with, whose name escapes me now. Well, I sort of took him out after a sound check for a beer and sat him down and said, do you want to join Stiffle Fingers? <laughs> we need a bass player. And he was like, sure. And, and that was it. And then he stayed with us for like 15 years. So, How did you find the resurgence of punk in particularly America in the 90s, obviously with the bands that we started out talking about, bands mm. like Rancid, Green Day? They really put it on the map, didn't they, yeah. on an international scale? Sure. And there's always been, I guess, either... The one school of thought, which is that it's all good because exposure is great because it feeds back into it. And then I guess you get the more jaded, bitter, cynical people that think this is a misappropriation of this original thing. What was your take on bands like that coming out, coming through? And what did the popularity of bands like that do for bands like yourself? Well, to be honest, I don't, I don't think I ever thought of it in terms of, I didn't, certainly didn't think of it um, in any sort of bitter way um there certainly are those that do look at it like i'm that, sure there they? are but you know that, that again you know that's the, there's not really a lot of point in the it. old punk police going, there's not a lot of point in going that road really no I mean, you know, well it doesn't um, get anyone anything does it so you know as far as i was concerned good luck to them um i mean i was the, the thing that disappointed me most with a lot of them was their subject matter you know they suddenly had this immense audience and all they were writing were songs about you know drinking fighting and screwing and i'm like really that's really all you've got to write about you know but uh, I mean, obviously, that's not true of all of them. Obviously, somebody like Green Day have actually written, you know, songs like I mean, songs like American Idiot and stuff that actually mean something to them. Um, and then other bands, a band like Band Bad Religion, for example, I've got nothing but respect for because they really did sort of mine their own, you know, their own furrow and and and. Uh, can you mine a furrow? Ply their own furrow, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> They're the absolute kings, though, aren't they? But, you know, they, they were brilliant and, 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 and still are. Um, and, and, and again, so I got to know those people. Um, and that was kind of weird because it wasn't like getting to know people like the Skids and the members as, as sort of contemporaries. These were, these were guys who were claiming that we were influences on them. So, and yet they were way more successful than we were. Um, so, we'd, you know, we'd do tours opening for these people. Um, but to a man, they, they all turned out to be incredibly nice guys, incredibly smart people as well. Um, which, you know, I think is reflected in, in their lyrics and in their, you know, people like The Offspring as well, we, we toured with who were remarkably nice people. And, and, you know, also not, you know, not thick as two short planks, which is the traditional view of your average punk rocker. You know, it's like, that's not the case at all. Certainly hasn't been the, my my experience. Um, so it was, you know, that, that was it was great from that point of view. No, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the, the thing is, it, it got to be as big as it got to be because record companies realised you could make money out of it. I mean, that's that's the big difference between when we were coming through. I think a lot of the record labels still saw it the way I did initially, which was like, okay, this is great, but it'll all be done in six months. So we're not going to invest any money in it long term because they're not going to be here. Um, I think by the time a Green Day or a Bad Religion or an Offspring came around, the, the, the genre had established itself and had been around long enough that the powers that be realised that it's probably worth investing in. And that's, that's a big reason as to why a lot of those bands got the careers they got. Well, Nirvana, I guess, were a huge part of that, right? Well, again, Not you know, so much punk rock, but right. they realised the, the value of alternative Sure, right and you know, again, again, the, the difference between here and America is uh, what it was then. I mean, not so much now with the rise of the internet, but then, the the what would be referred to as alternate stations now. There were college radio stations back then, and they were the ones that were playing all this stuff. And they had as big a you know some of those DJs, the names that you would never hear, but they had an audience as big as Peel had here. And, and, and they would champion, you know, again, we were slightly too late for that, or slightly too early for that, rather. And, you know, so, you know, we, we didn't really get picked up by a lot of those people. Because, unfortunately, the people who, who went on to become those, those DJs and, and presenters were sort of the, the younger end of our audience at the time. So they hadn't gone to college yet, you know. So, um, but, uh, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know... It's, I think that there, there are a number of reasons as to why it became successful. Mainly because, like I said, the industry took it seriously. Have you seen the movie High Fidelity? Yes. 
And you're aware of obviously the scene in that where yeah. they draw the line between Stiff Little Fingers and Green Day as mm -hmm. musical influence. Did you notice any heat around the band off the back of that as a movie that was obviously quite a big cult film? Did um, you find people turning up to your shows kind of going, oh, I found out about you guys through this one scene? Because... Right. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I, think, I, I don't know whether it was the, that movie just on its own, but certainly, you know, with the with the likes of Green Day or whatever, saying that they were, you know, they were influenced by us. Um, and like I said, it wasn't just them, it was those other bands I mentioned. And they did, they did tend to be American bands in, in the main, which is weird because we never sold record one in America. But I, guess, <laughs> I guess it's a bit like that old quote about the Velvet Underground, you know, they yeah. sold 10,000 records, but everybody, but everybody bought everybody one, started a band. A band yeah, right? yeah. And I think we must have done the same for a lot of these bands. Um, what we got then on the back of that was what we used to refer to when we were starting as the Iggy Pop effect, which was like, you know, because suddenly bands like the Diamond and the Pistols were claiming that Iggy was a big influence on them. And although Iggy had had that sort of, you know, little bump to his career by being associated with Bowie, he was still very much a, an underground artist. Yet suddenly all these young kids are now like, who's this Iggy Pop then? You know, and so he, his career obviously got a boost because of that. And I think that, you know, that definitely helped us. Yeah, we were getting people who were coming along you know, to see the band that influenced whoever, you know. And there's also as well, I mean, another thing that we've always had, which is the sort of the, the older brothers record collection when they move out and go to yes. go to college or whatever and leave their records behind. We, we get that. Sadly, now it's becoming the grandkids, the granddad's record collection, <laughs> but you, you get the idea. You, know. you don't have kids, no? No. No? Has no. that never been on the, the cards for you? Is it just because you've... Always uh, been touring and busy, and I, I honestly don't know why. I mean, no, it just just never happened. You know. And you don't think it's going to happen? Oh God, yet. no! <laughs> no, it's not happen. no, I'm 61 years old. It's not happening now. Uh, what took you to Chicago? Was that a, a lady as yes, well? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. So how long have you been living there? Is that still home? Yes, it is. Uh, I've been there. It's getting on for 15 years now. Wow. So. I've never been. I've always wanted to. I saw the um, Anthony Bourdain episode where he went there, and it seems to have great literary culture, great bar culture, great food, sports culture. It seems to have everything that you'd want from a, yeah, a major city. Yeah, it just city. wasn't so damn cold in the winter. But, oh. I mean, you know, that's, that's the standard joke. It's like, you know, if it wasn't for the weather, everybody would want to live there. You know, so, um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I really like it. I mean, it's... I mean, I've, like you said earlier, I've lived in a number of places. I mean, I, I grew up in Belfast. I lived in London for 11 years. I lived in Newcastle for 15 years. I've now been in Chicago for about 15 years. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the one thing, well, it's a couple of things all, all the cities have in common. It's like, they're all divided by a river, every one of them. I've always lived on the north side of the river. <laughs> I don't know why that was just, that was just an accident. Um, there is a bit of a divide as well, right, in the city? Uh, yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah there is. Um, you know, um, but but they've all also been certainly the places that the parts that I've been living in. They've sort of all been very sort of to use the American term blue collar. They've been very sort of working class cities, and and that you know I think that's that's kind of so ingrained into who I am as a person. Now it's like I remember just before I left Newcastle, sort of we'd moved into a a nicer part of town, and I really didn't feel comfortable, and I couldn't work out why. Um, and, and I mean, I'm not. It, I don't want to get involved in some form of inverted snobbery because it's not who I am. But I, I think I just didn't feel particularly comfortable that suddenly my neighbours were were doctors and, and professors rather than, you know, plumbers and and, and, and carpenters that I used to I was used to talking to. And, and I, well, I, it's I, just I mean, common I did, ground, I did common kind, interest. I did kind of feel it? a bit inadequate, really. I guess if I'm being completely honest, you know. Like you don't belong. Yeah. 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 Even though you know, it's like. I'd, I'd paid for my house as much as they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's a, strange, it's a strange thing, and I, I know it is a form of inverted snobbery, and I, I wish I didn't suffer from it, but there you go. Uh, you started a band with some Chicago natives as well, right? The Pegboy guys? Is that oh, well, right? Yeah, that was just for fun. Yeah? I mean, it wasn't like a long-term project no, or anything? No, no, no. We basically did it because... And was one of the guys from Rise Against involved as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Joey, but he only did one He did one song. <laughs> <laughs> no, basically the idea is it's just a bunch of... Uh, it's, it's for a children's hospital thing. We just do a gig once a year. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just a raise, it's a toy drive, it's a raise, you know, to get toys and, and, and cash for this, this kids unit. And that's really all it is, we do it once a year. Do you yeah. do covers? Do you do originals? What They're do you all do? covers. What, do you, what sort of stuff do you play, all punk rock or pop? No, or? no, it's all, it's all over the map. I mean, yeah, I mean, we do, we, we do covers of, it, there's the occasional 
one or two of our own songs get in there. They play a couple of different finger songs. We play uh, a couple of actually we play a couple of Naked Raygun songs because John was with Naked Raygun before he was with Peg Boy, and he we play a couple of songs he wrote for them. Um, we've played generally. It's a lot of stuff that we all loved when we were growing up. You right. Know? So there's like there's a there's, there's more bad Thin Lizzy covers than you can shake a stick at. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just stuff like that, you know. It's like some, and then whoever gets the short straw has to sing the ACDC covers. I'm not singing that. <laughs> so yeah, it's just for fun. But you know, it's, it's one of those. Yeah, it, and it is a rag bag of whoever happens to be in town, you know. And yeah, I think Joe uh, from Rise Against was like so wanted to get involved, and uh, I'm not even sure if we gave him a rehearsal. I think we said to him, yeah, learn Paranoid by Black Sabbath and we'll see you on the Friday. <laughs> okay, and he turned up and that was it. <laughs> so you've got some, uh, some friends in the musical community there as well. Sure. Love yeah. it. Um, Pauline, Pauline Black, where does that friendship begin? Back uh, well, in the day or? <clears throat> again, the, uh, the two-tone uh, label was distributed through Chrysalis, so we all used to meet at the, the, the label offices and stuff. I mean, I became much more friendly with the specials guys um, because they were there more often. Their um, new album's great. Have you I've heard only it? heard bits and pieces. It's um, really good. So I don't feel qualified to, to, to talk about it. I've only heard a couple of things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, and I became friendly with them, particularly with Brad, who's sadly no longer with us. Um, but he, he, I think because his girlfriend lived in London, so he was in town a lot more. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I met Pauline. We did a, a radio thing, a couple of things together. I mean, they were forever set, and the record label would get you anything to get you on the radio or get your picture in the paper. Oh, so they team up artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or, you know, if, if something like that round table show, they would sort yeah, of yeah. sell you as a group package. You know, so we, we would do those things. Um, but I didn't really know her until we did the Three Men in Black thing. Um, we did a few tours on under that that banner. And uh, you know, I mean, I remembered her from back in the day as being spiky. Yeah. <laughs> well, she still is. I love her. She's been on this show. She, she does not is, suffer yeah. falls. She no, doesn't she take does shit not. from anyone. Well, why should she? You know, why should she? <laughs> She's great. And uh, and yeah, I think you know because you know we, when we did those those three men shows, we we seemed to get on pretty well, and you know we we'd still do now. I mean, now I, now I consider her a very dear friend. But you know, it, I, when it was first suggested we go on the road, my first thought was, oh yeah, she can she can dig her heels in a bit, can't she? Uh, <laughs> but it's no bad thing, you know. It's no. no bad thing. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's been on the show. Um, I think that's about all I wanted to talk to you about, Jake. Okay, cool. let's, let's end with a bit of Birmingham culture. You're a curry fan, I gather. I've seen your tweet today. <laughs> I am indeed. You're excited about a bit of local cuisine later on. Um, where are your favourite places in the world to enjoy after-show food? Because you've I, obviously I, been here, there, and everywhere yeah, at this stage of the game. I don't tend to eat after-shows. Do you not? No, I'm, we've gotten... To, well, I used to, but I can, you know, probably give myself ulcers and stuff. But um, these days, we tend to just have a big meal at lunchtime and then that's it because there's a show gets in the way which is why last night was unusual in so much as you know we did the first show in Leeds uh, and then it's like well you got a day off we've only just done one show yeah yeah, um, that's a weird way to start it isn't it, it was very odd because um, you like to I'm, get into the groove in those first yeah, couple I, I don't think, you I think probably we're the, I, I think it's because of the, the way the rehearsals panned out and then this next run of shows, it would have meant we would have been playing for like seven nights in a row. And right. You do that at the start of a tour, you may as well just kiss your voice goodbye. It's yep. not going to be there. Um, so, yeah, so it was like, so, you know, uh, I, I, I think we got here and everybody had gone to the rooms. I was in my room about 10 minutes and the phone rang. It was like, do you want to go for a curry? I went, it's like, it's 5.30. <laughs> no, not now, you idiot. I mean, later. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, Where do you reckon has the best curry in England? Because people always debate uh, between Manchester, London, and thinks, Birmingham. Everybody thinks their home, their home curry house is the best. Um, what were the Newcastle curries like? Anything to write home about? Some, some of the places were great. Yeah, um, some not so much. But, you know. <laughs> I would probably, and I'm not just saying it because you're sitting here. I think probably here's where I've had the best curry. In the I'll but, take that as a win. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's true. I certainly, I you know. When does this go out? Am I in and out of Manchester in one piece? Because this I went, will be out in a few weeks. You'll be out of there. You'll I'll be, be clean, off. safe. Okay, I'm safe then. Yeah, no, we, we, we went to the the, the much famed Curry Mile. Curry Mile, yeah. I was underwhelmed, to yeah. say the least. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't. Well, it's the same with Brick Lane, isn't it? That's not where you're going to get the best curries in oh, London actually, anymore. I take it back. Sorry, see, you oh no, I've thrown the goal. Hounslow, Hounslow's where right. I have the best curry in the world. I take it back. Yeah. You've got to go see, slightly off the beaten track, haven't you? Well, again, Hounslow was just, again, Steve grew up in Hounslow, so, you know, all his friends from when he was younger are all Asian lads because he went to school with them. So they know the spot. Yeah, and of course, you know, it's like, 
like I said, you know, if you ever if you ever stay in because you play in London, you never stay in London as long as it's way out by the airport and stuff. But it just happened that, in fact, it was bizarrely after the Green Day thing because we were literally as soon as we'd done that, Ian and myself were flying straight back. He lives in Los Angeles. We were flying straight back to America the next day. So it was after the Green Day thing, we went back to the hotel, dropped our gig bags off, and uh, armed with the knowledge that just pick any curry house in Hounslow, you can't go wrong. We went and we found one that was packed with the, with the locals. Went, That's got to be the one. And it was, in fact, yes. Yeah, so sorry, you shouldn't have reminded me. You well, well now, fair's fair. It's always that sign as well, and it's a good sign to share, is if the place is busy with locals, right. or if, say, it's a sushi restaurant and it's full of Japanese people, right. etc. that's the spot, isn't it? Absolutely. Because you know if, yeah, it's, if it's popular with them, that's for a yeah, reason. You don't, want to, you don't want to be stereotypical about these things, but in general, that's not a bad rule of thumb. Is it? Well, if it's busy, it's got to be good. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Jake, a real pleasure meeting you, yeah, mate. Thanks for your time, man. And looking forward to the show tonight. The last time I saw you guys was Green Day. The first time I saw saw you was in Exeter at the Lemon Grove oh, right. I was a student right. there at the time probably 2006 something That's like that back, yeah. and me and my friend Kim went we were probably the only two students in there and I fucking loved it cool and um, here's to 40 years mate keep rocking yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna go and have a cup of tea and a lie down before sound check <laughs> no curry <laughs> no not today no not today nice one bud Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 